Welcome to the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Evan Schwarzstraber. On today's show, powering the internet. As the internet of things evolves and more and more devices are connected to the internet, what does that mean for our energy system? Will we have the power we need to bring the 4 billion people who don't have internet online? And what does this mean for countries' efforts to expand electricity? Joining me to discuss this is Nomini Rubin, Vice President of Tetra Tech, a global engineering and consulting company. Prior to that, she worked on the U.S. House Committee on Foreign Affairs. Nomini, thanks for joining the show. Thank you for having me. So you've got this blog out, um, Without Energy, the Internet is Just a Black Hole, Creating Energy Solutions for Information and Communications Technology. Um, and we'll link to this blog in the show notes. It's on the Alliance for Affordable Internet's website, and uh, your company is a member of that alliance. Um, at a high level, what is the relationship between the internet grid and the energy grid? We, um, the internet is completely powered by energy. So without energy, we cannot have the internet at all. So they're completely linked. If we don't have um, connectivity to electricity, we can simply not have connectivity to the internet. And to what extent are the grids intertwined? And um, when, as the internet developed, was it, you know, did we keep that in mind that we have this energy grid and that there's a lot of shared infrastructure? Was that part of the plan or was the internet merely just uh, using the electricity that was already there and people didn't really foresee how quickly this would develop? It's the, the latter. People... People haven't integrated internet and electricity enough. There's actually a technology that would allow you to put internet on electricity wires, but it's not it's not used commonly. And shared infrastructure, which is really what we should be doing so that you're saving money and saving the environment by sharing um, the towers or sharing the piping that goes underneath roads for electricity or, or the internet, um, that hasn't happened enough. Um, so the Chairman Rice wrote the Digital Gap Act, which promotes that idea that when the U.S. funds development projects that are related to infrastructure, that they work with the private sector to see if there's some synergy between the different types of infrastructure. So in your blog, you mentioned that there are 4 billion people currently without Internet and about 1 billion people worldwide without electricity. Now, this is not the most sophisticated observation, but... It sounds like uh, electricity is way ahead, that that people are much more likely to have electricity than they are to have internet access. So is there really a problem um, if the electricity is so far ahead? Isn't that kind of like a down payment for the internet? And it's going to take a while for the internet to catch up to that uh, one billion number? Or is is, the, is there actually a shortage that is, is coming on the horizon? Um, well... I think we need to be in a rush to get those four billion on and not say, oh, well, it'll take time because electricity, it's the electromagnetic platform of the industrial age and Internet is the electromagnetic platform of the information age. And if we want to make sure that we bring all people on the planet along into modern society and the modern economy, we really need to pay attention to both. And we we don't. We, we may not have the right solutions on tap on, on electricity to really achieve the future we want on the internet. That's because we are going to need a lot more power for the internet. Right now, 10% of all electricity is used for ICT, information communications technology. And we're seeing more and more people use more data and that's going to require more energy to store that at data centers and use more devices that you 
will need to be charged. So you're going to need more data for just for these typical uses. But if we think of the future, where we have things like self-driving cars that are going to create as much data in one day as you and I have collected in a lifetime, we're going to really need to think through how we make sure we have enough energy to support those systems. And you mentioned that the rise of the Internet of Things, you know, I always joke that it's like Internet-connected coffee makers, but there are obviously much more important things than that. Um, That means that data power consumption is going to triple in the next decade. Where is this demand coming from? You mentioned that there are kind of like four parts to the demand of uh, electricity for for the Internet. Right. So the four parts are data centers, where we're storing the data, the wireless networks, where the data is moving through and connecting people, the actual devices we plug into the the wall, and the the energy that's used to make those devices. Right. So the factories that are making the iPhones, you got to plug the iPhone into the wall, then you've got to make a phone call with the iPhone, and then all of of those activities uh, put a demand on the grid. Now, computing costs are going down. Is that actually a problem for energy? Because as it gets cheaper and cheaper to store data and to build wireless networks, et cetera, that just means that people are going to want to build more of those things and they're going to use more electricity. So is there a disconnect between the demand for energy and the ability of uh, government's private sector to provide that energy? Um, There's definitely an increasing demand for energy, because of the internet, people want to use it, but they also want to use energy for a whole lot of other things, right? They want it at their hospitals, they want it at their schools or, or at their homes. So we're going to just generally see an increasing demand uh, for energy. And um, it's not necessarily a disconnect, but it's certainly a challenge for, for governments around the world to figure out what, it, what is the best way to provide that that energy and how can people afford energy that fits their environmental needs. My favorite line in your blog, of course, I'm going to ask you about this is energy is like a kale salad. If it's just kale, it doesn't taste good. You have to mix it up. Now, uh, I'm not a fan of kale, even if you mix a bunch of stuff in it. (laughs) But uh, what do you mean by uh, this this uh, analogy that energy is like kale? Well, people want to like say their energy solution is the right solution, right? Like it has to be all this type of renewable energy and in it, it just doesn't work, right? It has, there has to be a mix of different types of, of energy, um, whether that's natural gas or solar or hydro or wind or, or coal, like there, there has to be some sort of mix in order to provide the amount of energy that's needed on our planet. And uh, to your point, uh, you mentioned in your blog that Google has said that neither the wind nor the sun are constantly available resources. They come and go with the weather. So is that essentially the issue is that if you rely on one source of energy and that source of energy craps out, then you've got a serious problem for the Internet? Absolutely, because we, we don't have the technologies yet to make renewable work 100% of the time, right? We don't have enough battery storage for for to, to make that work. We don't have things that sometimes will work at night, right? Like solar does, just doesn't work at night. So we need to, we until the technology cap catches up to where we want to go, we, we're just unable to use one just renewables. And speaking of catching up the technology, this is something that your company, TetraCheck, is working on. And, um, you know, when I think about the current electricity grid, I think of it as very old and clunky and not necessarily next generation. But when I see all these news stories about wind and renewable, and that seems very high tech, 
is that essentially the challenge is that you have an old system that was not designed for anything other than really fossil fuels and like the traditional energy sources. And then you've got these new energy sources. And while the technology might be there, it's hard to integrate. So what is Tetra Tech doing to take those new technologies and integrate them into old systems? Um, we, we work on both the generation side, the, the new technology side and the distribution side. So it's helping... Um, work with policymakers to make sure that uh, it, it's actually allowed to bring the solar onto the grid or um, sometimes we work with countries to make sure that they're they're not unnecessarily restraining solar right some some countries say you can only use solar um, to the grid which may not make sense if you want a contained cybersecurity system a microgrid so we we work on the policy reforms that, that allow for flexibility we also work with um, countries to to allow them to to find the the best solutions um, for their their existing systems. So sometimes it is upgrading their their grid um, and their the technology around it. Sometimes it's 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 actually just helping people do do infrastructure work. Sometimes it's doing transaction advice. You want the private sector to come in and. Um, and they might not know how to best interact with the government, and there might be solutions there. So we kind of do a mix of things depending on the country. We're, we work in countries around the world, so every country is different. Like, so our solutions for Malawi might be very different than our solutions in the U.S. So when you mentioned that there are sometimes there are policies on the books that might uh, hinder the rollout of renewable, like you, you mentioned that sometimes they require the renewable to be attached to the grid, even if it might make sense to have this self-contained mm-hmm. system, which is interesting, right? You could imagine that someone just builds a, a data center in the middle of nowhere and they want to use solar there and it wouldn't make sense to require them to attach it to the grid because the grid's not there. Um, why are these policies in place? So, you know, a lot of times I have guests come on and they talk about all these great things that sound extremely common sense. And I've just got to wonder why hasn't every government just jumped at the opportunity to remove barriers to energy deployment? Is that is there an incumbency protection there? Is Are the local fossil fuel industries basically trying to prevent competition from renewable energy? Or is this just an educational thing where the policymakers just don't know that their policies are preventing progress. I mean, what what do you see as the uh, kind of like the reason that uh, we haven't seen more progress on the policy front? I think that the I think that people want to do well. They want their countries to do well, and I and um, I think a lot of the the slowness in in t- having policy reform is um, creating a critical mass to make change. Politicians don't just make policy reforms because they're purely the right idea. They're they need That'd be nice, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Like they're, they're, there's a political aspect to it, and so they their their goal is is to do what their people want. And so it just sometimes it just takes a while to do the education, to do the coalition building, to identify the problem, and then figure out what the solution is, and then get you know the policies actually voted on and, and changed. It's you know democracies can be slow. But they they're responsive, and um, so I think we need to sort of be patient with them, but also just make it really easy for countries to know what the right answers are, so they don't have to recreate the wheel all the time. And it seems like we've got 
a little bit of a problem in that the internet does put a massive strain on the energy grid. And you have mentioned that there are other uses for energy that need to be met, you know, whether it's a hospital or just put it, keeping the lights on or maybe air conditioning in some extremely hot places. <laughs> uh, like today, today, it's really hot in DC, right? Yeah. Um, so, but is it the case that the internet is a problem for energy or, I mean, we've got this explosion of technological innovation. The internet certainly is at the center of that. Could the internet actually help improve our energy system, make more energy available, or is it really just a strain on the system and we have to meet it because the internet's so great and we love it? I mean, I'm just trying to get a sense of how much the internet could be part of a solution to an energy crunch. It, it is part of the demand and it's also part of the solution. So what's really exciting is where we're looking at projects in, in Africa where people are using their cell phones to pay for renewable energy on their homes. So instead of buying and using a lot of their money on a big solar home system, they can pay for their energy as they use it using using their phone. And it's a really interesting example of how you're using the internet to facilitate, you know, responsible energy use. Um, and and you're seeing you'll see that more and more where people are, are using the internet to to structure different uses of energy like O-Power, right? Like they're using the internet to create competition between people so that they can reduce their, their energy use and be more, become more efficient. Um, so, so it's, it, you know, while it might be part of the demand, it definitely can be part of the solution as we, as we look forward. And you've mentioned that there are energy ministers across the world that want to leapfrog current technology. And, and you know, we, we've talked about that in the wireless sense, where rather than initially build out a wireline network, some countries will just say, let's just jump to 5G because, you know, why, why go through all the motions that the Western countries did when the new technology has arrived? So the concept of leapfrogging, I can, I can handle, but... Um, what does it mean to leapfrog technology in the context that we're discussing of this internet and energy? And what, what do policymakers hope to accomplish? And what exactly are they skipping? I mean, when you say you're leapfrogging, you imply that you're skipping some type of development that maybe happened in the Western world. So what does that mean? So I think leapfrogging would be exactly like not doing it exactly the same way that we did in the U.S. and in Europe with the fixed lines that, that are underground. Um, you know, thinking about new ways to to have connectivity, whether it's um, you know what what Facebook's thinking about with planes um, that are so balloons, yeah, Google, right? Google's loon, um, you know, different. Those are different technologies. Like the internet over the energy lines is is another one. Um, you know, or um, leapfrogging in ways that might be not even never considered here right so where you you work with um small home businesses to sell internet uh, kiosks just like they sell mobile phone minutes mm -hmm. using that on for internet and kind of building economy economic growth um that way and um helping um, you know small entrepreneurs and, and women entrepreneurs kind of uh, improve their their quality of life so um there there are definitely different things that, that, but I think that we're maybe we're not totally there yet. Like we might be, we might be at the, at the beginning of, of a potential leapfrog moment, um, where people in the developing world are re totally recognizing the importance of the internet and they 
want it and they want to figure out how to get it. And so we might be at that moment where they're about to come up to, with some exciting solutions um, that we might not have even conceived of. And when we're giving kind of homework for policymakers to help achieve this very noble goal of bringing people online, I think no matter what your you know politics are, you can get behind that goal. And that's one of the most bipartisan things going on in the world these days is just connectivity and deployment and getting people online. We mentioned one policy solution, which could, which could just be as simple as ending a requirement that all renewable power be attached to a grid if it's not feasible. Um, you mentioned the Digital Gap Act. There's uh, other things you mentioned in your uh, blog post, like build once. Um, what is what is that all about, and uh, how is this a policy solution that could help uh, you know increase the amount of energy as the demand for internet increases? So um, the when 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 a shortest story about this is is that the World Bank did a, a loan to Liberia and spent about a hundred million dollars on roads. And there was a staffer who suggested that they just lay pipe underneath the roads so you could connect Liberia. This is many years ago. And they estimated that the cost of, of wiring Liberia would have been about $700,000. And um, and folks determined that this was a luxury. To, to, you know, Liberia needed roads, not internet. So they didn't do it. And this was before Ebola. So you could have had Liberia wired, you could have had a um, life-saving tool in place that would have really helped. One of the biggest problems with the Ebola outbreak was the lack of information. And we talked about this in the United States, too, about dig once, where like when you're going to do a road project, the cost of adding that pipe to put the internet in is such a small fraction of the total road project. And if I have your numbers right, the ones you just said, you said they got a $100 million grant to build roads. It would have only been $700,000 of that $100 million to have internet. Potentially. I mean, you still have to wire it. Yeah. But and they did not make that trade off. That sounds like a policy problem. If people right. are, are looking at those numbers and somehow come to the conclusion that it's not worth the tiny percentage added to have Internet, that's less than one percent. And now, you know, the donors are spending millions of dollars trying to help bring Liberia Internet to different parts of Liberia. And the sad part is it's like the, there's country after country with that example. Um and it's really it's pennies on the dollar right. when you're when you're thinking about it. Um, one of the comments we that the chairman Rice got on the bill um, after it was introduced was was from Americans from Taxpayer Reform, which said like this was a, a good idea for the U.S. But, I mean for for the developing world, but it's even a better idea for the U.S. Just to your point about dig ones that that it would make sense here in the U.S. And there are actually some states in the U.S. that are, are looking into it. San Francisco's sort of adopted that approach, but. Yeah. It just logically makes sense. Yeah, and of course, it it might be seen as a common sense thing in certain places, but uh, it's really important the work that you're doing because if any government sits down and makes that determination without all the information, that could lead to serious problems. You mentioned with Ebola. Um, so, what other types of public-private partnerships um, do, do you think we need to get us to a better future? I think that one of the the most important things is is not just the governments getting out of the way of the private sector, but really inviting the private sector in. So when there is a plan for some sort of big project, that they they announce it in a way that's easy for the private sector to get and, and understand where the opportunities are for a partnership. And um, what we, we did this, uh, Tetra Tech did a project in the Philippines that was a fisheries project, and it was 
that we were trying to figure out how to, to improve uh, the fish stock. And we found that the fishermen weren't re- weren't registering because it was hard for them to go all the way to the town to register. So they would we, we realized that they needed it was easier on an app to register and then they can just measure the fish that they catch and it'd all be in the app and and, and was working and, and realized that we needed internet connectivity for it. So Tetratic USAID, the government of the Philippines and Microsoft did a partnership to bring super Wi-Fi using TV white space, so the part of the TV spectrum that's unused, to do super Wi-Fi in that area. And then the government of, of the Philippines is now thinking about piloting it across the, the country. And it was really um, important to like kind of see the opportunity and be able to invite in. And But it's not always that apparent in, right. when people are doing other types of projects. And I think that most you know, if you think about most internet connectivity con- types of companies, they just aren't going to know when the government's doing stuff unless yeah. the government makes a much better effort. To, right. So to that, that's care. the importance of the communication uh, as basic as just uh, letting people know what's going on so right. that they can, uh, uh, you know, potentially participate. Well, I'll, uh, I'll close out the show with this uh, great quote from Pope Francis that you included in your blog post uh, at a recent TED talk. He said, how wonderful would it be if the growth of scientific and technological innovation would come along with more equality and social inclusion? And then you said, helping all 7 billion people on the planet have access to electricity and the internet and ensuring energy is available to power that internet is the challenge of our shared future. Well, keep up the good work. It sounds like Tetra Tech is at the center of the internet and energy situation. And uh, thanks for joining the show. My guest has been Nilmini Rubin, Vice President of Tetra Tech, a global engineering and consulting company. Check out her blog post, which we'll link to in the show notes for today. Thanks for, so much for joining the show, Nilmini. Thank you. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Tech Freedom. Let us know what you think of the show. Send us an email at media at techfreedom.org. Find this podcast in the iTunes store. Please leave us a review because we'll help others find the show. Thanks for listening. The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax-deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.